Near the end of World War II, a young American soldier named Lauren Singer volunteered to the Offices of Strategic Services, otherwise known as the OSS. There, he underwent a series of psychological tests designed to see if he would be suitable for espionage. Working with the organization that eventually became the CIA, Singer researched intelligence gathering, operatives, and how totalitarian regimes were selecting their spies. Along the way, he learned that at the Nuremberg trials in 1946, American psychiatrists interviewed senior members of the Nazis' genocidal regime. The aim was to gain some insight into the minds that carried out Hitler's final solution. One tool they used was the Rorschach test, and it struck Singer that the test could be used to assess a candidate's suitability for covert operations, or to use the parlance of the OSS, black ops. And it was that realisation that inspired Singer to write his novel The Parallax View. Although poorly received upon its publication in 1970, it sold well, and in 1974, it was brought to the screen by producer-director Alan J. Pakula. Joe, what evidence have we got? A girl who died of too many pills and booze, that sheriff up there that you say tried to kill you, and the poor bastard drowns. I got a bank book here with $107,000 in it. A sheriff? The police are after me. Then why is there no APB on you? I checked as soon as you called me. They're not interested in you. They all say it was an accident. They don't want to answer questions. You're damn right they don't. Sheriff L.D. Wicker and two of his deputies were indicted three months ago on a utility scandal up there. It was in every paper in the Northwest. He knew you were a reporter, but it wasn't any national conspiracy he was covering up. You were in a whole different ballgame. You didn't even know it. It was the Rorschach test in particular that resulted in one of the film's most memorable sequences. Warren Beatty plays Joe Frady, an investigative journalist who stumbles across the Parallax Corporation, an outfit that offers personality profiles, all with the view of gauging their suitability as assassins. Could such a company really exist? Well, in April 1975, Fletcher Prouty, who, in the 1960s, had served as Chief of Special Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff of US President John F. Kennedy, published a paper called An Introduction to the Assassination Business. It is available to read online, and in it, Prouty wrote, Assassination is a big business. It is the business of the CIA and any other power that can pay for the hit and control the assured getaway. It is not uncommon for former members of the intelligence community to fictionalise their work. And indeed, Graham Greene, who worked for Britain's MI6, made a very fine career of it. Yet, Prouty's declarations are so candid, it goes to show that not everyone in the intelligence community believes the public should be treated like mushrooms. Just look at Edward Snowden. In fact, Prouty was the inspiration for the character X in Oliver Stone's masterpiece, JFK. Everything I'm going to tell you is classified top secret. I was a soldier, Mr. Garrison. Two wars. I was one of those secret guys in the Pentagon that supplies the military hardware, the planes, bullets, rifles, for what we call black operations. Black ops. Assassinations, coup d'etat, rigging elections, propaganda, psych warfare, and so forth. The Parallax View opens with an assassination of a presidential candidate and Pakula made sure to stage it so that it resembled the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968. 
Then a number of witnesses to the assassination meet with mysterious deaths. Suspicious, Freddy begins to investigate and volunteering to the Parallax Corporation, he undergoes a test that has him watch a montage of seemingly benign images. It is not wholly unlike the sequence in Anthony Burgess's 1962 novel, A Clockwork Orange, where young hoodlum Alex undergoes the Ludovico technique, a form of aversion therapy. What exactly is the treatment here going to be then? It's quite simple, really. We're just going to show you some films. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. But where Stanley Kubrick's adaptation presented the sequence as an exercise in physical terror, Alex's eyes are kept open with clamps so he cannot avert his gaze, Pakula went in a cerebral direction, making sure that we do not see how Joe Frady is reacting, but instead focuses us exclusively on the increasingly provocative images. David Fincher did something similar in his 1997 thriller, The Game. Consumer Recreation Services. Well, I do have golf clubs. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. But for better or for worse, Fincher decided to erase any political or sociological element, instead admitting it was just as the film's title suggests. A game. Published in 1970, I can't imagine Singer not having been in some way influenced by Richard Condon's 1959 novel, The Manchurian Candidate. John Frankenheimer filmed Condon's novel in 1962, and in doing so, delivered a masterpiece that climaxed with an assassination attempt of a presidential candidate. It's been decided that you will be dressed as a priest to help you get away in the pandemonium afterwards. Chun Jin will give you a two-piece Soviet Army sniper's rifle that fits nicely into a special bag. There's a spotlight booth that won't be in use. It's up under the roof on the 8th Avenue side of the garden. You will have absolutely clear, protected shooting. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head. Just like the Manchurian candidate, the parallax view comes cloaked in marvellous paranoia. But where Frankenheimer kept everything tightly framed with frequent use of deep focus, Pakula employed a different visual scheme. In 1971, he had collaborated with cinematographer Gordon Willis on the Oscar-winning psychological thriller Clute. There, Willis had used anamorphic lenses to compose a series of images that heightened the isolation of the lead character Brie Daniels, played by Jane Fonda. So successful was their collaboration that Pakula engaged Willis again. In a resume involving 34 feature films over 27 years, Willis repeatedly proved himself to be more than an integral part of any director's vision. Simply put, Willis was one of cinema's greatest ever artists. His preference for low levels of light resulted in his being called the Prince of Darkness. But there was much more to Willis than a light meter and an f-stop. What makes his work instantly identifiable is that he rarely moved the camera, creating a series of tableaus that often silhouetted the actors. His preferred lens was a 40mm, and when it comes to cinematography, it is the choice of lens that is perhaps the most impactful. While lighting determines what we see, a lens dictates how we see. A lens that most resembles the human eye 
is anything between a 35 and a 50 millimeter. Anything either side alters how we see the event. In other words, the artistry of cinematography becomes apparent when it does not so much present the event as when it expresses its content. A camera lens can carve out space differently than the human eye. But you may wonder, if Willis preferred the 40mm lens, how is his work any different from the way you or I see the world? Willis somehow managed to work in strong geometric patterns, vertical or horizontal lines that dramatically cut off the background or divided the frame into separate fields to guide your eye towards the most important information. In other words, Willis's approach visualized the theme of the story and you only need to look at the Godfather trilogy, All the President's Men or Manhattan to see how important his influence was. Whether he was collaborating with some of Hollywood's most celebrated auteurs, Pakula, Coppola or Woody Allen, and irrespective of the genre or regardless whether the setting was urban, rustic, contemporary or period, Willis's treatment bought a visual consistency that sometimes superseded the thematic work of his directors. Congratulations, Richard. You had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. Testing for what? The Parallax Corporation. You did apply for our training, didn't you? Willis's visual scheme is not the only virtue in the Parallax view. The screenplay, an adaptation by David Giller and Lorenzo Semple Jr., with an uncredited rewrite by Robert Town, is lean and confident enough to trust that audiences will work out the more obvious details. Consequently, it is structured around a series of set pieces, and what fuses them all together is a magnificent score by Michael Small. Like the story's pacing, Small's compositions are spare and slow, and echoing Willis's visuals, it somehow manages to combine just the right amount of menace with just enough hope so that you're not utterly defeated by the film's downbeat ending. <laughs>